check that out. <laughs> okay, uh, today's scripture is from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard, who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. All right. Thank you, Angela. How's everybody doing? I'm going to steal this over here. The band's not coming back. It's okay. I'm going to do this and this and a little capo here. All right. Everybody all right? Did I already ask that question? I did. Um, it's good to be here. It's good to see you guys. And I'm meeting sort of new people every week that have been watching online and are just now beginning to like come in. And it's, it's really great. It's really great to meet you. I'm glad you're here. Um, and uh, if you have any questions or anything like about the church, about us, about God, the scriptures, if you need just to bounce some stuff off people, uh, talk to people in the room, talk to me, I'll stick around and talk to you all day, I don't care, I'm going to the beach later, but until then, we can hang out and talk. Um, and uh, yeah, this is our passage today, I haven't preached in two weeks, and so I'm ready, I, I like it, I like teaching, I like talking about history, I like pointing out things that maybe people haven't seen before, and sort of zeroing in on like what Paul's going through and kind of point out the ways that, like, you've probably been here yourself. And so that's sort of what we're doing today. I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into this passage. Shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for the people you brought here this morning. Thank you for the musicians that um, just led us in, in song and worship. I pray that the, uh, the gift of music somehow um, connected with us and, uh, and moved us in some way. It centered us, allowed us to be more present. Um, I pray that uh, we would understand that you are here, that you are working, that you are present in all of this. Um, I pray that we would realize that we don't need to necessarily be focused on ourselves as individuals, but as a community, that we need to be listening to each other, um, that we need to be building each other up. Let our focus this morning, um, any type of blessing, let us focus that on giving it to other people. Any kind of repentance, let us receive that ourselves. Um, let us look at others and, uh, and, and, and lift them up and see them as your presence in our lives. Let us submit to each other. Let us listen to each other. Let us see each other. Thank you, Father. Speak through me now. Let me remember the things that I've studied this week and uh, give us exactly what we need, exactly how we need to hear it, including myself, Father. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, so Paul 
leaves the city of Athens. If you're, if you're new here, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, we're in chapter 18. That's what we do. We kind of go through books of the Bible. We spent like three years in Genesis, three years in Matthew, and we're in year two in the book of Acts, um, trying to wrap this thing up. Um, and then we're going to go to Romans. Let's go. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're in Acts chapter 18. Paul has just come from Athens. Um, for me, I, some of the things I want to point out to, as we move through the book of Acts, some of the things I like to point out is, is how Luke writes. Luke writes in a way that connects the story of the book of Acts, which is volume two of his two-volume series. Uh, the author, Luke, one of the, one of the disciples, he writes the gospel according to Luke, and then he writes the book called The Acts of the Apostles. And these two books are the same length. They fit on the same size scroll. They flow the same. They describe literally the same things happen and the same works happening through Jesus first and then the church. In other words, you're doing what he's doing. Okay, so um, that's how we have been going through the book of Acts, pointing out all like, the similarities between uh, the church and Christ and how we are continuing on that mission. So Paul shows up in the, in the city of Corinth after he leaves Athens. Now, let's talk about Corinth. Um, this is the part where I always get nerdy here. Check out if you want for a second. I love this ancient nerdy history stuff. Okay, so first off, it's, uh, uh, Corinth is in the southern part of Greece. It's not an island. It's a, it's a peninsula, but it's like almost like... The land comes down to like a small four-mile-wide strip and then opens up, and Corinth is right at the top when it begins to open up. And so everyone going anywhere in the ancient world is going through the city of Corinth. It was actually such a... um, If you were to sail... Okay, here's where I get nerdy. If you were to sail around the bottom of the thing, um, it was absolutely dangerous. They said basically the the old saying was in the first century, if you're going to sail around the bottom of of that... uh, that peninsula there, um, go ahead and make your will. <laughs> Get your affairs in order because it's a dangerous, dangerous trek. And so what people would do is they would pull in next to Corinth and they would literally line the road with logs and they would drag the boats down the road across to the other end and put them in the water over there. And it would be shorter and cheaper. And so while you're sitting in this city and while you're looking out there, you may see here and there boats in the distance going, just massive ships going by on land looking hilarious. Um, this was a major trade route. It was incredibly wealthy. The people there um, flaunted their wealth. They celebrated their wealth. They lived in absolute opulence, but they also um, lived just abject immoral lives. They, um, the way that, if you read ancient literature, the way that they talk about the Corinthians, um, to be called a Corinthosai, I think that's what they call them. It means if you're a man, if, if they describe you as a, basically a Corinthian man, that means you're a drunk and you fight a lot um, and you're promiscuous and uh, you, it just all these things. The ways that they would describe you if you're from Corinth, that's what you are. Um, uh, because the people there um, just lived lives of complete sort of debauchery there. They would worship in the, uh, the, the temples um, and worship in the temples required eating too much and binging and purging until they hallucinated. Um, it also involved... Uh, Lots of drinking. Um, it involved sex with the temple prostitutes. All kinds of stuff was happening in this city. And Paul walks into this city, and he's never been there before. Um, from what we know, he's never been there before. And um, he does immediately what he ha- has always done in every city. He walks in, and he's not shocked by anything that he sees. He walks right to the synagogue on, the, on Saturdays, and he begins um, to teach in the synagogue to the Jewish people about the message of Jesus, about how Jesus is the Messiah we've been seeking. He is the Davidic king that we've been wanting. He is the one that we should order our lives around. And so 
uh, week after week, what he finds there, as he gathers there uh, in, in the synagogue in the city of Corinth, what he finds is there's a lot of opposition to his message. It seems that the Jewish leaders from the other cities have already sent people to Corinth, knowing Paul's probably going to go there next. And every time he gets up to speak, they push back against him. Not only that, they literally abuse him. They beat him up and they throw him out of the synagogue over and over. And every week he goes back and every week he talks more about Jesus. And every week, I got something going on with my eye here. Um, and every week they come to him and, and, and beat him up and throw him out. And he's having just, it's this intense sort of opposition that he's facing um, each and every week. Uh, look at verse 6 here. It says, uh, it says, when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest. And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Uh, then Paul left the synagogue and went, to the ne- went next door to the house of, of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. So he eventually gets fed up, as you do, from people persecuting him and pushing back on everything that he does. And eventually he just lashes out and he's like, you know what? Forget this. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm out. Whatever happens to you happens to you because of of your treatment of those around you and myself and your rejection of the message. Continue down the path towards destruction. It hasn't gone well before. You've constantly been slaughtered by the Romans because you keep trying to use the method of the empires of Rome, which is violence and power, to establish the kingdom of God, and it can't be established that way. God literally does not work in that way. God works through the power of the cross. And he says, I, I give you up to what you want, and I... I let you, I'm going to the Gentiles is what he says. I'm not, basically what he's saying is I'm not working with the Jews anymore. He's a Jewish Pharisee, and he's not, no longer going to work with his own people, so he can specifically work with the Gentiles. Apparently, the Gentiles are easier to work with. Um, and so he begins, he goes next door, and he begins working with them. So this is a moment where Paul can't really maintain like, his, um, his emotions. He can't maintain peace and calm, and he lashes out. Um, and it's sort of, I would... I would say some of the uh, fruits of the Spirit fell off his tree here, <laughs> and they had to regrow after some pruning, probably. Um, I don't think this was a, a good look for Paul. I don't think this was what he was supposed to do. I don't think this is the correct response. Um, and here's the thing about the Scriptures. When we read the text, we have to realize there's two different, there's two different types of texts. There are prescriptive texts, which is the Bible sort of saying, like, here's what God wants his people to do. And then there's descriptive texts, which is, Here's what God's people did. And they're not always the same thing. Actually, most of the time, they're not the same thing. Um, and that's sort of what we're talking about uh, this morning. And so oftentimes, the reader believes that whatever the main character is doing or claiming, um, that is what should be done. And so we just read the Bible, and every character, again, I've, I've hammered on this a lot because I want people to understand it. We read the entire Bible as if every character has an equal voice when talking about God, but they don't. Jesus is the premier voice in the Scriptures. Jesus is the one who we look to, to hear what God is like, to see what God is like, to know what God is like. And anyone who varies from the direct actions of Jesus um, has not acted in a godly way. This is what we've been given. This is how the early church interpreted this as well. Today we tend to read the, the prophets and we tend to read uh, the kings of Jerusalem and everything. We tend to read all of them as what they say is equal to what Jesus says. And we just kind of try to find like a system uh, to put it all together, some sort of systematic theology where we can sort of build everything together and somehow like make it work and you worry, read it like a, like, a, like a math equation or a puzzle. But really what the early Christians were doing is they were looking at Jesus and they were like, I didn't know God was like this, but now I know. And so now I'm going to go back and read the Old Testament 
and I'm going to see the ways in which they understood God and which the ways they didn't understand God. Um, and I'm going to hear the prophets, and the prophets are going to are going to they're, they're speaking the message of God to a people who need to hear it. It's a whole thing. Like when you look at this, you can't just look at what Paul's doing and then say Paul did it. I'm doing it to you. Jesus never did this. This is not what Jesus was doing. Okay. Um, so a lot of Christians have this sort of skewed reading of the text. And so many times in our life, though, what Paul is experiencing here, I get it. You get it. Like, you've experienced this. People pushing back on you constantly so hard that eventually you're just like, I'm done. I'm out. Do your thing. And we, I'm taking my ball and going home. Find your own ball. Um, and this is what we tend to do. And so we experience working with difficult people through difficult subjects of disagreement. And sometimes they become abusive. And, and, and it's, it's not usually physical abuse today. Back then it was. You were just allowed to abuse people back then. Um, uh, but today it's typically emotional abuse that can do plenty of damage and take years to recover from. And, and it's difficult. And so perhaps you've experienced this. I imagine you have. And I imagine probably in the last year and a half or so. Um, and so oftentimes, though, it helps to remember that Jesus experienced this as well. Jesus is not a stranger to these kinds of things. Um, I mean, Jesus experienced this, which is probably exactly why this story is captured in Luke's writing. Again, you have the Gospel of Luke, and then you have Luke's writing called the Acts of the Apostles, the planting of the church, and they're parallels of each other. And so Luke is purposely pointing out all of the ways that the people of God are going to run up against everything that Jesus ran up against. And even when we respond in our own flesh, we can look at what we did and we can look at what Jesus did and we can say, I'm so glad he went before me. I can look back and I can, I can adjust. I can just follow Jesus into this thing. I can just, um, I can repent and I can say I shouldn't have done that and I can make it right and I can walk with behind Jesus who's going before me, Christ before me, right? That's, that's the chant, that's the prayer. Um, Jesus knows what that's like. He's been there. There's one point where Jesus is preaching a sermon, and it says a massive crowd, probably hundreds and hundreds of people, walked away from him. They got mad. What he was saying was too heavy for them to accept, and they walked away. And he turns to his disciples, and he says, are you going to leave too? And they say, where would we go? Where would we go? We've built our lives on this thing. There's no one else to build our lives upon. Um. Jesus has been there. Jesus knows. Um, and Luke wants the church to know that our life and ministry runs parallel with the life and ministry of Jesus. And so something happens. Paul leaves, sort of ruins his testimony to them, if you will, and he goes next door, which is awkward, because now he's next door to the synagogue, and he's in the house there, and every morning he walks out, and he's like, oh, damn. Um, and he, but he begins to teach there to the Gentiles who aren't allowed to go into the synagogue because they're not full Jewish converts. They haven't been circumcised. And so he spends his time with them. They believe in, in God. They believe in Yahweh. And they want to follow you. They want to live by the laws. They, they believe in the vision that God has painted for the world. But they're not full Jewish. And so they're not allowed to enter into the synagogue. They're not allowed to go into the temple or, or in Jerusalem or anything like that. So Paul ministers to them. This becomes Paul's full-time ministry. Paul eventually trans, uh, completely moves away from um, ministering to the, to the Jewish Christians, and the other apostles continue that work, and Paul ministers specifically to the Gentiles, and his whole point is finding a way to include them. His whole mission is, we know from the prophet Amos, from, from the prophet, um, uh, uh, oh man, Elisha and Elijah, we know God's going to bring the Gentiles in. Why aren't they in? And Paul seeks out to include the Gentiles. This is what God has called him out to do. This is what he sees his role as. 
Um, and so that's what a lot of his work is. But as he's ministering to these Gentiles, something happens one night. This is what happens. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you, because I have many people in this city. In other words, you are, you are not alone. There are people here that I have been working on that you have no idea about, and, and, and I will bring them to you. They will stand side by side with you. You are never alone in this entire situation. In verse 11, it says, So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. This is the longest Paul stayed in any city during his missionary journeys. A year and a half from the city of Corinth, he will write letters to Rome. That's where we get the book of Romans. If you flip to the back, the last page of the book of Romans, there's a list of like 16 people, I believe, maybe more. Um, those are the people who he's there with, who, who God apparently says, they're with me. And God brings them to Paul. And you can read that list of people. It's Jews, it's Gentiles, it's all together. And they're helping Paul write this letter. And they're thinking in unison. And they're discerning the spirit of God together. And it's this thing that God does for him to encourage him through this whole thing. But God speaks to him and he prompts him that this is not the way of completing the mission of God, this shunning people and kicking them out. No, open your arms and bring them in. The mission of God is centered on love. There's a commentator, um, William Jennings, in his incredible book. Some of you have asked me, like, I want to read broadly when I study the Bible. I don't want to just read the same old European theologians. What else was happening in the world? Who else has written about the scriptures? What other Christian brothers and sisters do we have out there that I can read? William Jennings is a great one. He's an African-American um, uh, theologian. I, I, I forget where he teaches. If I think of it while I'm going, I'll let you know. Um, but actually, he's going to be doing a stint at the seminary that, that I graduated from as well. Um, so... Um, he, he writes this commentary on the book of Acts, and here's what he says. He says, love might sometimes threaten to abandon, but it, but it never really does. Love threatens sometimes to abandon. Um, that's kind of what we sometimes do. We make, I mean, if you've got kids, how many times yesterday did you, did you threaten to take away their screen time? <laughs> their screen time. How many times did you threaten to ground them, but you just didn't? I know. Um, and you think you're a bad parent for it. But here's the thing. That's kind of sometimes what love does to you. Like, love threatens sometimes big consequences, but it doesn't follow through all the time. Love never really abandons anybody. That's not what love does. Paul's outburst was, was, was not really a part of God's plan. We know the plan of God because we can look back at the story um, of God throughout the, the history of the scriptures and the history of the church. Um, and we can see that every time God's people turn their back on him, he never abandoned them. He would give them some space when they're in exile so they could sit and experience what they want. And let, oftentimes, like, the wrath of God is just God saying, okay, I'm going to take my hands off for a little bit. I'm going to let you experience exactly what you want, and let's see how it goes. Like, sometimes when you actually receive everything you've ever wanted, that's God's judgment on your life. You're about to learn a difficult lesson. You're about to see something which you, you were incapable of seeing before. Sometimes when you get everything you want, you should probably be terrified. Um, perhaps it's not what God wanted. And perhaps you forced it. And perhaps you had to do some ungodly things to get there. Um, that is actually how, we, that's the same choice that we're given in the book of Genesis. We got two trees, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And the tree of life. And they're both going to teach you the same thing. Tree of life is going to tell you how good God is there to provide for you and love you and draw you in. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can get to know all about good and evil and what's what. What it's going to lead you to is a knowledge of how good God is. <laughs> it's going to lead you to the same thing. He's going to come back again. They're going to lead you to the same thing. But how are you going to learn the lesson? Um, and so early on, you know, like Paul has to now learn this lesson 
of reconciliation. We've already seen him several times struggle with reconciliation. He tends to shun people. This is the point where God interrupts that pattern of his life of blacklisting people. And he says, no, 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 no. We're going to learn some faithfulness here. This is what we're going to do. I mean, early on, if, you, if I think about like the planting of Watermark, I, I started here in 2003, so it's been a long time. But pretty early on, we had um, <clears throat> some lively discussions about uh, we were changing in who, as, in who we were. We were originally sort of a reformed church, and as we got more, it sort of, sort of established in different sort of thinking in, in more of a more of an Anabaptist sort of way, centered on the book of Acts, less on the book of Paul, um, on, on the books that Paul wrote, we, we began to read the scriptures differently as it pertains to things like uh, women in leadership. Um, and we became majority egalitarian, sort of through the work of the Spirit. God just did this thing, and we all someday, one day, like, started asking, like, is this what God is doing? I think this is what God is doing. And we worked on it for years and years and years, and we thought about it, and, and um, we would talk about it in our house churches. And... Um, and it, it became sort of this, like, default position of, like, yeah, men and women are equal in the church. This is what God is doing. This is what, this is what I mean, there, Paul, sure, in, in, in the city of Ephesus, he's, he's, he's silencing women there, but at the same time, he's sending women to lead the churches of Rome. So why is Paul doing this? And we come to realize that, like, there's this contextual thing that Paul is doing. Each city is different and needs its own solutions for different things. And that's what Paul's doing, discerning by the Spirit. And when we did this, though, about probably 30 or 40 people took their ball and went home and left, Right? Um, and it was difficult, but several years later, probably like six or seven years later, some of them wandered back in, and they were like, hey, can we talk? I was like, yeah. They're like, I want to come back. I'm like, say no more. You're in. Let's go. Like, that's it. Like, we're done. Like, God continued doing the work, and you're back, and I'm glad you're here. It's called faithfulness. That's what it should be. That's how it works. Um, there's nothing to be repaid. You don't have to write me an essay on how wrong you were and why. You don't have to stand before the church and confess. Like, no, just, yeah, c- come on. Like, pick up a rake and get to work with us. Um, you're in. So, like, sharing in the suffering of Christ is something that we need to grasp. And, and when I say sharing in the suffering of Christ, maybe you hear that and you're like, that's a weird thing to say. Paul said it all the time. There was a way that Paul and the other apostles viewed these types of of trials, these moments of great difficulty, Paul eventually came to see them as, oh, I'm becoming Christ-like. I'm having a really, really hard time right now. Things are really bad. I'm becoming more Christ-like. And Paul puts it together like this, and here's how sort of Paul writes about it in, in, the book of, in, the, uh, in his letter to the church in Philippi. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his suffering, to become like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And how did Paul think this happened? By understanding that he was living out the great theatric, the great theatrical performance of the gospel, of Christ. And every time it becomes difficult, he sort of looks back to volume one of the life of Christ, and he says, Jesus went through this as well. What did he do? I will follow our great pioneer right through this whole thing. I will follow him right through. I will do what he did because I don't have any answer on my own. And the only other thing I can default to is the culture around me. And they're kind of violent. And so I have nothing else to follow. And so I'll follow Jesus. Um, And in this way, Paul believed he was sharing in the sufferings of God. So let me ask you a question. Like, Like Paul, have you ever actually like struggled to love God's people, the church. Yeah, that was a quick yeah. Like, yeah, me too. Like, have you ever, like, really looked at the church and you're like, I, I'm, I don't even know what that is. Like, I, I grew up in it, 
And it's always been this wonderful thing. I don't know what this is anymore. I don't know what's happening. And I'm angry. Um, <clears throat> you struggle with loving the church. You want to be done with her. You want to throw her away, shake the dust off your feet, and, and, and take, take your ball and go home. That's the only sports reference I have. <laughs> That's all I got. Um, the temptation to lose patience with God's people is not an anomaly. It's very normal. Um, you felt it. I felt it. Um, God felt it many, many, many times. I mean, here's the whole thing. If you read the Old Testament, the one thing you can't help but come away with is like God's people get pretty terrible, and God just gets better and better. Amen. He just gets better, and he just keeps chasing them down. And I don't understand it. I don't understand what he thinks he could accomplish with all of us, but he has a plan. Um, the Father felt this, what you feel, what Paul was feeling all through the scriptures. Jesus felt it through his entire ministry. At one point, he turns to his disciples, and he goes, are you still so dense. He literally says that. That's how we translate the phrase. Are you, are you still so dense? You, don't un you, you still don't see what I'm doing. And they're like, I, I guess I don't see what you're doing. Because we're all wrapped up in our ways. Um, Paul and Timothy and James and Peter, they all share your struggles with the church. They share my struggle with the church. We're, we're all sort of in the same struggle. Um, it's godly and holy and Christ-like to look at the church, to look at God's people and say, um, I'm, not going, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to throw you away. I'm not going to, you can throw whatever you have at me. You can hate me in however many ways you want. You can, you can treat me um, as ungodly as you want. But here's the thing, I can see through that. I believe behind this, at the base of this whole thing, is a good savior. Um, and my love for you will stand as long as Christ still has love in his heart for his bride. Love, love the church in the direction that she's supposed to go. Love is not something that you just, you just love people exactly where they are and just hope they stay there. No, love, love pushes people in a direction. Um, as, you, as you love someone, they become more lovable. They become more beautiful. They kind of bloom and open up and they come alive. This is what the church needs, to be loved again. We have millions and millions of podcasts mocking and trashing the church all day long. And, and perhaps they belong. At some point, we're going to have to understand that God's vision for Paul is the same vision God has for us. Stop being afraid. Stop having fear. Don't give up. Go back in and engage again. So after some time and a word from God, Paul picks up the work again, and, he, and the text tells us that he even stayed there for a year and a half. And so what this is all about is faithfulness. I told you, sort of, we've got, we've got two series going at the same time. We've got the book of Acts, and then we've got sort of this, this underground series that we're doing on the fruits of the Spirit. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. Um, faithfulness finds its root in the character of God, so that it, it also must be manifested in the lives of God's people. Um, Psalm 100 talks to us about this. It says, For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. There is not a generation that has not, that is, that has not been engaged with the love of God. That God has not come down and said, I'm with you, and I'm for you. Please follow. And some succeed, a small remnant, and, and others fail. And the next generation comes along, and God does the same thing again and again and again and again. Deuteronomy 32 
Uh, verse 4 talks about how, how, how God is a faithful God, and it specifically says he's a faithful God without deceit, because there are so many who you feel like are faithful to you, but then all of a sudden one thing happens and they turn. And you realize that was deceit. They never really loved me unconditionally. That was all something else. I don't know what that was. I've been deceived. But God is not like that. That is not how God lives. His faithfulness is not an act. It's not dependent upon anything. It's not dependent upon your spiritual performance. God's faithfulness to you, his, his chasing you down and staying with you, is not dependent upon your spiritual performance, either good or bad. None of that can drive God away. There is nothing that you could do to make God love you more or less. There's nothing. The, the, the levels are set and they're not changing. Um, you cannot be separated from God nor his love. You can perhaps be estranged from God, but God has never run away from you. You can be in the presence of God and not realize it and not care. But that is not the attitude that the present God has with you. Reliability, steadfastness, constancy, fidelity, dependability, trustworthiness. This is who God is. This is who we are supposed to be becoming. James writes to us, and he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, the word faith here is this Greek word, pistis. Everyone say pistis. Pistis. Okay. That's a word, uh, it's the root word of the word faithfulness. It is sort of like it's, uh, it's the constancy of pistis. Like the, the, it's, it's, it's constant. It, it, it keeps moving. Pistis is a word that would, that would be interchanged in the first century for allegiance, for steadfastness, um, for believing in, for trusting in. It was a word that sometimes they would use to describe if someone ha- is on a dock and they have a large load, they want to put it on a boat. They roll the whole thing over on the boat knowing that the boat's going to still float when they get it on there. It's to roll everything over onto it and, and believe. Okay, um, faithfulness. Like, so when he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience. The same root word is there. Our, our first instinct at passages like this, though, is to individualize it. And we look at it and we say, oh, my, it's about my personal trials. It's about me and like, my struggle to like, make ends meet, um, my struggle to like, advance my career. And we personalize it and we just, again, what I like to call sprinkling a little Jesus on our lives to try to make ourselves feel better about how we live. Like, um, but that's our first instinct. But the word faith here is, again, the same word as faithfulness, um, is about trust and allegiance and commitment. And James says that this learning to persevere, when things get difficult and your faith in somebody, like your faithfulness to somebody just perseveres on through to God and to the church, to others, to other people, when you persevere in your faith, um, Here's what he says. When you persevere in your faith, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The perseverance is supposed to teach you something. Learning to persevere. Love people through all the difficult things that they bring to the table. It's hard to do. It's something that can only be done by the power of God because God is the first one to show us how this works. Um... And so it's supposed to teach you something about yourself, about others, and about how people change. We sometimes feel like we've, we've tried, I've tried everything to change somebody. Like, I try everything to change them. Look, I, I, uh, I shamed them, and I mocked them, and I screamed them on the internet, and I, I argued with them, and I showed them all this list of facts about why things are not the way they seem to them. I've, I've even blacklisted them and blocked them and cut them off, and they still haven't changed. And I don't understand why. Am I the only one that thinks that's crazy? Faithfulness is how God has changed everyone, ever. God has never changed people by just leaving them alone. 
That's why Christians love the concept of hell so much. Have you thought about this? We're really good at throwing people away. How could God not be like us? But he's not. God chases people. He doesn't stop. He pursues and pursues and pursues. And we think, I've, got, I've used all the tools in our culture that they, we've all come up with collectively. But the problem is we've rejected one last thing, which is what Christ is offering. Christ-likeness, faithfulness as a tool of transformation. Sticking with people, though they hate you. Praying for them, for their well-being, for their flourishing. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he doesn't mean kill them. He literally means pray for their flourishing and work for their flourishing. There's something in their life that is broken that only God can fix and you are the manifest presence of God in the room. Move towards them and work on it. Put your privilege and your desires aside and stay with people. And not only that, consider it joy, James says. I, have you ever thought about like the, the people that are writing these things? The apostles that are writing these things. The lives that they lived were harder than anything we can imagine. And yet they're always writing about joy. And it's so hard to wrap your mind around. And interestingly, James tells us that our faithfulness to these trials, it makes us what he calls perfect. This word, uh, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature. Uh, depending on what version you have, uh, if you have an ESV, I believe it says perfect and complete instead of mature and complete. Um, we tend to think of perfect as morally perfect, ethically perfect, no, had, had no sin at all. That's not what they're talking about in the first century. This was a regular word, this word perfect. It's a regular word that meant things are as they should be. Um, it means to fulfill your purpose. So in other words, here's what this means. If you have a clock, like a nice clock made by, what is a, a clockmaker. I don't know what, they, I'm sure they have a fancy name. A clock, so many, it's not. Um, and they, and you get this clock, and they give it to you as a gift, and you look at it, you're like, wow, it's beautiful. And you have a stack of papers, and there's a fan on, and you put them on the papers. You put it on the papers. You say, it's perfect. It does ex it's exactly what I needed. It's going to hold those papers down. That's not what it's for, okay? When you put it up, and you read it to tell the time, that's what the word perfect in the scriptures is about. It's doing what it was designed to do. It's accomplishing exactly what it was, it was meant to accomplish. So what James is saying is like, no, this is all part of it. There's a work here that God is doing. It has a purpose. It's fulfilling it. And Paul changed from this point forward. Because, I mean, again, like I said, this is where he writes the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is different. Um, what's happening, if, if you haven't heard me talk about the book of, Roman, book of Romans, let me give you a general idea of, of the struggle, of, what, of why the book is written. It's not a book about salvation. It's not a book written to tell people how to get saved. I know this because they're all Christians. <laughs> He's writing to a church. They, they, know, they know how to follow Jesus. He's not telling the people in the church how to get saved. He's telling them what it means to be saved. He's telling them what it looks like when you live it out. And so what's happening is there's all these poor Jewish Christians who were the church in Rome, but were exiled by Caligula 10 years earlier. 
And so they're not allowed to, they were, now they're poor, they're wanderers, they're the diaspora. And the church becomes a Gentile church while they're gone. Eventually the order, the, the, the order to get the Jews out of Rome is rescinded after the death of Caligula. And the Jews start coming back about the time that Paul comes to Corinth. And a year later, Paul writes this letter to Romans um, because he hears what is happening in, in, in Rome. And it's probably the same thing happening in the city of Corinth where the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers have different moral structures and they don't know how to be a church together. The Jewish people are very religious. They're high church, right? They're like the Anglicans. Like they, they, they dress up and they have liturgies and they live very, very moral lives. Very like laid out. They follow the law. The Gentiles are more like Watermark. <laughs> no, like they, the Gentiles, they're like, they're not doing the same thing. They come, they were, have been formed by the empire of Rome, and they're slowly understanding what it means to follow Jesus, and they're having to rethink all these things, but, but you know what? They, they still do all these things that the Jewish people would never do. The way that they live their lives and the way they organize their lives is not the same, and a lot of the things that they do offend the Jewish Christians, and so there's a problem, and it's tearing the church apart, and they're, they're pondering splitting and starting two different churches, which had not happened yet. Ponder that. We invented the church split. We invented multiple churches in one city. Not God. Um, and by the way, God has every intention of one day bringing it all back together. So that church you left, you'll be with them again one day. Um, so, pat, so patch it up, patch it up. Listen, Paul writes to them and he says, hey, what we know about Jesus forces us to lay down our own desires and enter in community with people that we don't want to enter into community with. People that you would never choose to be in community with. You have no choice. If they walk in the door, they belong to you. God has brought them in. They belong. And so here's where we find ourselves. They're looking around the room and they're saying, well, I, the problem is I can't, be in, I can't be in fellowship with them because there's all these rules that I have to keep. And Paul's basically like, what, what are you willing to give up? Because your whole story led to the inclusion of Gentiles. That's why God did everything he did, so God could save the world. Gentiles are the rest of the world. He saved you. The Gentiles are the rest. They're coming in. What are you going to give up so that you can remain in fellowship with them? What are you willing, what privileges are you willing to throw off? What power are you willing to lay down? What desires and wants do you have that you're willing to put aside, at least for now, so that you can remain in, in, in fellowship with these people? That is the only way. And, and the reason he can say this and ask this of you is because this is what Jesus did. He who knew no sin, he who sat upon the throne and gave it up and become a man so they can enter in to relationship with you. The faithfulness of God always shines through. Always. And there's some in that church, they were asking Paul, they're like, oh, here's the, here's the question I have. I have it right here. Romans 3, verse 3, it says, what if some were unfaithful? Would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Because you see, the Jewish Christians are like, well, they ha they're not, like, they've been unfaithful. They're not, they're not fulfilling the law. They're unfaithful. And so God can't love them. And, and the insinuation is, if God can't love them and stay with them, then I can't either. Because they're all trying to be like, God, this is, this is how we use the Bible a lot. We use the Bible and we say like, well, God says this, and uh, he's pushing them away, so I'm going to push them away too. And, and we sort of jump through these mental hoops. But we never actually talk about Jesus when we do this. We talk about God. Yeah, yeah. Because we form an image of God that is, that is really more us than Jesus. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If they're unfaithful, obviously they're out, right? And Paul writes back, he goes, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Yeah, like he punches him right in the face with it. It's great. 
He's like, oh, you're Mr. Perfect over here. No, you're a liar. We're all, let's just all admit that we're all liars so we can stop calling each other liars. There is one who has not lied, and it is Jesus. Like, the church is never supposed to be a comfortable place. Never was supposed to be because the Spirit of God is wild. Like, always doing unexpected things and always will be. And so if you don't want to be surprised, you can't really be fully open to the Spirit of God because God has always done surprising things. And God intends to create unity between these warring factions. And the only way to do it is presence in the room, in the eyes of each other, fasting and praying and talking about God and your love for God and God's love for you and God's love for them as well. Um, all of this will either be really encouraging to you or terrifying to you. Either way, that's for you to figure out how you're feeling about it. Um, we have been so formed by the culture to throw people away. But God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And if that's going to happen, it's not going to happen in a vacuum when they're by themselves. And it's not going to happen over the internet. It's not how it works. And so how do we learn the attribute of Christ? How do we learn faithfulness? Cliffhanger. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Um, so... Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Be with us this week. Unsettle us. Make us uncomfortable with, with how things are. Let us listen to you. Let us put aside our own desires and privileges and rights and wants and just say, what does it mean for this to be formed by Christ, for that to be formed by Christ, for all of our lives to move forward in a way that like we are the presence of Jesus wherever we go. Somehow, let us grasp even a fraction of that. I believe it will change our entire city. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. So if you would stand with me, let's, uh, let's close it out with the Lord's Prayer, shall we? Uh, one more. There we go. Nice and loud. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you all. Grace and peace. Have the greatest Sunday of your life.